Welcome to Educate, Caring Activists, Teachers for Equity, the podcast about all things education and equity. I'm Jennifer Martin from the University of Illinois at Springfield. This is episode four, Communicate. Our guest today is Carrie Pointer, UIS's Director of Gender and Sexuality Student Services. Carrie Pointer has over 20 years of experience working with gender and sexual minority students in higher education at a number of institutions, including Columbia University, Duke University, New York University, and Western Michigan University. Among his experiences, he has managed a 2,500 square foot LGBTQ location, coordinated four LGBTQIA safe space ally programs, and empowered students through peer education. His work with Lavender Graduation Ceremonies was cited by Instinct Magazine as the best of LGBTQ offerings on college campuses. He is the editor and author of Safe Zones, Training Allies of LGBTQIA Plus Young Adults, Roman and Littlefield Publishers, 2017. And his articles have appeared in About Campus, the Journal of LGBTQ Youth, the New Directions in Student Services series, and the Journal of Baccalaureate Social Work. Since 2010, Carrie has served as the Director of Gender and Sexuality Student Services Office at the University of Illinois at Springfield, where he also served as the Interim Director of the Diversity Center. Today's episode is LGBTQ plus student protections and educator responsibilities. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. So I understand that you have a recently published book. Yes. Can you tell us about it? Sure. It's called Safe Zones, um, Training uh, LGBTQIA plus allies how to be, well, better allies towards their LGBTQIA plus gender and sexual minority youth. I use an expansive acronym with a little plus sign like that because um, oftentimes we can't capture all the different identities that might appear in the alphabet. But I think it's really important that we think about ways that that uh, if we're educators or helping professionals even, um, that we're finding ways to um, be more affirming and more actively affirming towards our young adults and our youth in our school systems for lots of different reasons. How can educators use this book or who's the, who's the actual audience for the book? Let me start from the beginning. The the book started because colleges and universities for the last 25 years have had these programs called Safe Zone or Safe Space or Safe on Campus. Um, We started a program back when I was an undergraduate student back in 1993 at Ball State University. We called it Safe on Campus and started sharing it with colleges and universities at regional conferences and kind of just took off and became Safe Zone. I'm not sure who started the word Safe Zone, actually. Um, and uh, it's been proliferating college and campuses around the country, North America, in sort of just cottage industry phase. And no one was standardizing what we were doing. But it was also sort of growing what we were doing. Initially, these programs were about just people putting up a sign that said they were an ally and it was a good, they were a good person to come out to. 
but since then it's grown to towards these are people who are learning to become better allies and they're interrupting homophobia and heterosexism and having difficult conversations with people brave brave conversations if you will and so these workshops that were being created needed to be standardized so um after all these years finally finally got got around to doing it and it basically teaches um, instructs people how to um, well gives them knowledge a knowledge base first of all which is really important because uh, people are even well-minded people who would consider themselves affirming or supporters are in need of some some good information right and where, where do you get this stuff mm-hmm. and what's the best way to offer it to people um so the, I use a constructivist pedagogy where it's very interactive learning, where sort of hands-on, you can sort of feel it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so simulations. In many ways, yes, okay. and lots of different ways. The book is packed full of activities that, that as such essentially teach about gender and sexual minorities. Um, the break, we break the binary of sex, biological sex, the binary of gender, and we break the binary of sexual orientation. I like the phrase, break the binary. Mm-hmm. It's a good alliteration, Katie. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Okay, so are there activities that K-12 teachers could Absolutely. use in their classrooms and schools? That's what we're about to get to, because we started this at colleges and universities, but I find that oftentimes people, it's no different, people are in need of no different with those of certain, that are in higher ed than those of, those of us that are in K-12 educators. Uh, a lot of times it's the same thing. And the activities, are definitely adaptable and transferable to a K-12 environment, particularly for people who are learning to be better educators, who are adults. And, and even lots of these activities are age-appropriate for young adults and youth. There is perhaps some caveats. Some, one, there's a chapter we talk about inter- intimate partner violence, and there's a chapter we talk about how to date healthy online. So, you know, there's some stuff in there that might, might be good for, our, for, for really young kids, of course, mm-hmm. but, you know, you can tell what, what's, what's age appropriate and what's not. Right. And at least it will be good for educators themselves, maybe to, for their own information yes. or to train their yeah. teacher peers. Train your, train your peers, train your colleagues. Mm-hmm. You can pick this book up and get all the activities. It's, it's a how to guide, if you will. I don't call it that, but it gives you all the instruction step by step. I'm glad that we have this important resource. Thank you. Can you tell us what LGBTQ plus stands for, your preferred acronym? Sure. Um, Sure, definitely. A lot of people are probably more familiar with LGBT or some combination of those words. Either either way you want to say it doesn't really matter. You could say GLBT. I had other letters like Q for queer, which is a, a word that people probably been taught as a negative word or pejorative, but a lot of people use it as a, uh, an affirming word. And sort of the, the connotations of it, of, of, of it as negative have been taken away from it, turned to a, a word of power um, and pride. I would add other words, other letters like I for intersex. Those are people that are neither male or female. One in 100 verses, a child that's intersex. So that's millions of people, at least in this country, millions of people around the world. So sex, once again, is beyond a binary of male and female. Um, I would add a P for pansexual uh, as opposed to bisexual, which means a binary of only being attracted or romantically attracted to two genders. Pansexual people, pan is a prefix for many, would mean people that are sexually or emotionally attracted to people of any gender. Once again, gender is beyond a binary of man or woman could be trans or transgender or genderqueer. There's lots of different gender identities. So 
there's an expansive alphabet because as we continue as a culture to understand the realities of sexual orientation and gender identity um, in the humans in our species, which has been well documented for many, many years. We can go way back to Kinsey back in the 40s and 50s who, who talked about this um, in his research efforts back then. Our species is, is quite diverse um, and nature has made it that way. What would so, you say to the people who, the critics who might say or the detractors who might say, why do we have to know all these letters? It keeps yeah. changing. Can't they make up their mind? Sure. You know, I, I kind of I want I like to put my, myself in their shoes to, and and that I like, get that comment because it sort of seems that way, right? But the reality is, is it's always been this way. It's just we're learning as a culture, a Western culture, and I'm talking about um, European culture here, that we're relearning how to understand gender and sexuality in this way as a species. If we look at other non-European cultures in history, Native American cultures, South American cultures, Southeast Asian cultures, African cultures, many of them saw gender, for example, beyond a binary. Um, the Zuni Native American tribe, for example, Southwest um, North America, on Arizona and such, um, saw gender as four, five, or six genders. And uh, well, much of that history has been lost because of colonialism and when the Europeans colonized this land. Um, but Native American tribes would, would call people such as this nature t inhabiting two spirits. In fact, they use the word two spirit to mean to people who are gender nonconforming or transgender. And uh, in many ways, we're, we're relearning that as a society, as a culture, to understand that. Can you explain the difference for our novice listeners between gender nonconforming and transgender? Sure. Transgender, currently, when, we, when someone says transgender, they're usually referring to someone who is transitioning from man to woman or woman to man um, and, and may um, undertake some combination of uh, surgeries and hormones. Um, not everybody does that. Not everybody does the surgeries because it's cost prohibitive and or they don't feel like they need to. And so that would be a transgender person. The old school term, a medical term, would be transsexual. And uh, But someone who's gender nonconforming, they just they uh, just don't hold uh, whatever ideals of whatever masculinity or femininity is supposed to be for their gender. Um, and it would say that they're perhaps not a gender. Some people would even say they're a gender, spelled A-G-E-N-D-E-R. Meaning? Um, without gender. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, I find a lot of young adults are doing, are, are this. They're just like, you know what, I'm... I don't always, I'm, you know, I'm told I'm supposed to be really feminine, but I don't, I can't do that. I'm, I can't be this hyper feminine person or guys that say, I can't be this hyper masculine person. I'm not that. And I'm actually more comfortable being gender nonconforming because that's, that was what works for me. Can you tell us about preferred gender pronouns sure. and pronoun usage in general, sure. its importance and how we can show allyship in the ways in which we use it. Sure, sure. So when 
So if I've been talking about gender beyond a binary of man or woman, so called the different number of different gender identities, and and along with that is how people show their gender, or perform their gender, or or how they look and what they do, or how they dress, and lots of different things. It could be hobbies, it could be clothing, it could be hairstyles, it could be makeup, it could be your shoes, it could be lots of different things are gendered, right? Um, and we're taught that you know certain colors are gender, and some are are you know what I mean, and so. Um, what happens is uh, when you meet people, particularly for the first time, sometimes you can't tell what gender they are, you know, and that with and we connect pronouns to gender, right? So a masculine pronoun would be he, him, his, right? Feminine might be she, her, hers. But there are other pronouns besides those people that don't. They're like well, you know, I'm gender nonconforming, or I'm trans, or I'm a, I'm I identify as a gender, and I don't use those pronouns I'll use something gender neutral and most the most in use right now that I find particularly on young adults and, and youth is the use of they them and there mm -hmm. which for some people in the English language feels a little odd um, but we actually do that all the time we use those pronouns in that way we just don't realize we're doing it um, and so uh, instead of saying she him she her hers they would say my pronouns are they them there so instead of saying she went to school, you would say they went to school. So it's sort of they being used in sort of the singular. Mm -hmm. And once you start doing that, it's really, it's really comes, it rolls off the tongue quite easily, actually. Um, there are a number of other possibilities for gender neutral pronouns. You can find a, a, a gender neutral pronoun usage table in my book. <laughs> it sure, sure explains how to do all this. Uh, but uh, I've, uh, sort of, I've seen also popular use of the pronouns, gender neutral pronouns, Z or spelled Z E or here spelled H I R. Mm -hmm. So Z E would be in in replace of she or he. Here H I R would be in replace of um, him or her, and that that has been pretty popular over the years. Um, so in the 1970s, Marge Piercy wrote a novel called Woman on the Edge of Time. And she, it's a science fiction futuristic novel, and she sort of foretold this neutral gender pronoun mm -hmm. and devised the pronoun per to stand for person, which I thought was ingenious at the time. I'm surprised mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. never caught I've, on. Have I've you heard, heard that, that too? Yeah. Have you? Okay. So research tells us that individuals in more vulnerable identity classes, while protected by civil rights laws, are more susceptible to bullying. For example, those possessing non-hegemonic identities, such as racial and ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, and women. LGBTQ plus students are the most susceptible group of students to experience bullying and harassment in schools. And also, LGBTQ plus students have been more exposed to increased harassment since the 2016 election, and they're the most vulnerable population to suicide. This is a big topic. Bullying of, of these this population of students, minority population of students, has certainly been in the news. It's been on people's minds. You even hear about school systems who will, will try to have an anti-bullying campaign. But I've always been very critical of that. Not that it's, their intentions aren't well, because they are. But how can you have an anti-bullying campaign if you're not able to use the simple terms like gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender? If you can't educate about 
the realities of a gender of gender that's beyond a binary or sexuality that's beyond a binary if you can't be real and honest with your students and your peers your colleagues because a lot of schools won't allow you to do that how can you really have a, an effective anti-bullying campaign you can't what are educator responsibilities within k-12 schools for example mm-hmm well, it's an interesting question. So what are the responsibilities or what should you be doing? You know, I, I think there's a different way we could we could say that, you know, there's responsibilities that maybe the law says you have to do. And then there's responsibilities that you probably should be doing ethically. Right. Um, so I like pre- prefer the ethically resp- ethical responsibilities. Um, the reality is that these these youth and young adults are there. And our interest is that as educators should be to make sure that they get the best education they can get. And we shouldn't be putting roadblocks in the way, right? So if someone walks into your classroom and says, this is how I identify, this is my name that I, that I use, this is my preferred name, or, and these are the gender pronouns that, that, that um, I, or, I designate for how to, how to call me, these are who I, this is who I am, we should be respecting that. And the same thing goes for um, sexual minority youth. Um, I, I have this is my boyfriend or girlfriend or the person that, that I'm romantically or sexually attracted to. This is my bestie or my boo, whoever. Um, and this is how I feel. These things are, these are real. Um, these students aren't making this up. It's not a phase. It's not something that's going to pass. Um, and the question is, what do we do with that information? And, and, and how do we make sure that it doesn't become impediment? to them getting a quality education. Those impediments usually are harassment and bias and bullying, right? Um, I would describe bullying as a number of different possibilities. It could be physical, it could be verbal, it could be how someone's treated. Um, and in our culture, oftentimes it's those that, that are gender non-conforming in some way, um, don't fit our, de- our ideals of clear masculinity or femininity, whatever those are. Um, that are bullied the most. Um, and it's those that are the sexual minority youth and, the, and of course, the, the, the gender minority youth that are figuring this stuff out for themselves for the first time in a world that doesn't accept them. Um, you know, they're in need of, of educators and principals and teachers, um, coaches who will support them and do it visibly, vocally. Um, which is oftentimes a problem for people in, in different school systems, where, depending where you are in the country, at least in the United States. Um, I suspect that might be somewhat similar to if someone's listening to this from somewhere else around the world. Um, um, people need to stand up and advocate, and, and sometimes it's the smallest things. It's the use of, of a beginning of class saying, here are my gender pronouns, and, and I'd invite you to share me yours. Or it's in, in, in stepping up when you hear derogatory terms, you know, whether it be, you know, the F word or um, someone saying, I still hear it in the vernacular, oh, that's so gay or whatever, mm. as to refer to a pejorative or something bad. Um, there's lots of different little tiny ways like this, but, but there's huge ways you could do it, too. Like maybe you're, you're studying important p- figures in history. Um, don't be afraid to mention that. Eleanor Roosevelt wasn't heterosexual. Don't be afraid to mention that stuff because the, oftentimes a person's work and their, their life and what they did, their sexuality and gender had a huge shape in, in that, whether they were an author or an artist or 
an activist or whatever the case may be, oftentimes that background is, is unfortunately erased. And what major empowerment it would be for these youth and young adults to be able to see that, oh my gosh, these people that I'm learning, they're just like me, or they were just like me in some way, shape, or form, right? I would also extend that to not just sexual and gender minorities, but also um, different racial minorities, African-American, Latinx, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, who, who, many who've had a, a major role in the development, at least of this country. Um, in history. Thank you. Can you describe and discuss the concept of misgendering? What does that look like and how can we avoid it? Sure. As allies, and, and, and I'm not transgender or trans, in fact, I identify as cisgender, which might be a new word for some people hearing this, uh, perhaps, uh, which, which means that my biological sex and my gender identity are congruent or considered normative. Most people in the world are cisgender. It's a, it's a better way of state instead of saying I'm not transgender, which has a negative connotation, I'm cisgender. Um, I'm of the majority in that way. Um, I have a majority gender, um, uh, which ha allows some privilege for me in that area. Um, although I like to think I'm somewhat in touch with what's it like, what it's like to, you know, be a guy that has a feminine side to him um, but so as a gay man I've certainly in touch with that in many ways but in case we get off get off topic here what's the question again <laughs> misgendering oh yes thank you um, so as an ally as a cisgender ally to people who are trans so sometimes when we're on a little journey we we can make little mistakes someone tells us or someone comes out as transgender and said, please use these pronouns for me and maybe forget initially um, and end up misgendering them by using an old pronoun or an old name, a previous name um, that isn't real now and end up misgendering them, misnaming them, in fact. Um, so, you know, those are times to learn. And someone may say, hey, you know, I've Let's remember that that's that's not who I am now. Um, I'm actually this is who I am, and that former gender was was incorrect. And so, uh, misgendering that can happen accidentally like that, but some people do it intentionally. Um, it's intended to they misgender to intend to harm um, because uh, what a belief that it's not possible that that there's more than two genders or. And I have seen instances problem. of teachers, some teachers misgendering yeah. their students because they're, the names on legal documentation, yeah. school mm -hmm. records are mm -hmm. a birth name as opposed to their name of choice. Right, right, right. Um, so what would you suggest or implore teachers to do in that regard? Right. On the first day of class, in fact, every every educator should do that, whether you're a professor in, in higher ed or elementary school teacher in fourth grade. First day's classes, ask students what their preferred name is. And, and you can get around that. Um, I would say, even in fourth grade, you can ask students what, what, gen, what gender they identify with by ask by sharing your own pronouns. Because there are, there are trans kids in, at that age level. Um, and um, who who have the support of their parents who are figuring this out. That may seem a, 
uh, perhaps may seem a new thing for people at that grade level, but it's I think it's age appropriate. Um, kids know their gender already at that age, um, and so one can one can share their pronouns. Um, for state class, like to say, my name my name is my teacher. My name is Carrie. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Let's all and that's that's my preferred name too. Can we all share our preferred name and our, and what pronouns we learn? What's a pronoun, teacher? What's a pronoun, Carrie? Oh, let's learn. That's about a great that. way to teach grammar, isn't yeah, it? Let's teach some grammar here. What advice do you have for teachers who may get pushback from some parents or some administrators or even some other teachers? Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a big question, big big question. Um, you know, I, I I hate to say, but you know, check in with your uh, your administration and say this is this is my lesson plan. This is what I plan to do. This is what I'm used to doing. I'd like to think that our preparatory programs are teaching student or new new professional to be teachers professional teachers how to do this um my fear is that most preparatory programs are not doing this for the most part yet and i've been i've been reading stuff over this over the years and it's and and i think what it's why even if it's not my book why information such as this is going to be so much needed in in year in the years to come and a response could be your kids already have this vernacular they're seeing it online. Their friends are like this. Their friends are using these terms, and they're. We want to make sure they're using it in appropriate ways. That yes. And ways that are useful, as yes. opposed to derogatory ways. Yes. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And as educators, it's critically important for us to create safety, safe spaces, safe classrooms, safe hallways, safe places for all of our students. If we see something, if we hear something, if we hear someone being bullied um, or homophobic comment or any um, type of comment, whether it's sexist, homophobic, racist, it's very important that we speak up and interrupt. If we don't, we're sending the implicit message that we endorse that behavior. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for educators, current or future, who are interested in helping to create or support a gay straight alliance mm -hmm. or a safe zone mm -hmm. program on sure. campus? Sure. Let's start with the GSAs, uh, gay straight alliances. I I hear this even in the state of Illinois. I hear this from my students and local folks who say we weren't allowed to start our GSA. And I say, did they have other recognized student groups? Yes, they did. Okay, of course they did carry it. So then, then that was illegal. Yes. All right, we have some clarification on the legalities of starting a GSA. And this information comes from a great organization that I highly recommend called Lambda Legal. And you can check out their site for any legal questions you have regarding the LGBTQ plus community. So here's what Lambda Legal has to say. The law is on your side. You're protected by the First Amendment to speak freely and forming a gay straight alliance at your school is free speech. Additionally, you are protected under a federal law called the Equal Access Act or the EAA. 
So secondary schools receive federal funding and allow for students to meet for non-curricular student clubs or clubs that don't relate in particular to any curriculum or classes at school. And according to the EAA, schools are prohibited from discriminating against any student group based upon their particular viewpoint. So you have a legal right to form a GSA and to be treated not in any way different from any other student club, including it is not permissible for schools to single out GSAs for parental permission requirements. It is also not permissible for schools to single out GSAs because their formation would create quote-unquote controversy. It is not permissible for schools to require a GSA to tone down their name, for example, to remove the word gay or lesbian or any other word that they are afraid of from the title to something safer, such as a diversity club. And finally, schools are not permitted to deny GSAs access to public bulletin boards, the PSA or public address system in the school, and any other privileges. Please contact Lambda Legal at www.lambdalegal.org help if you have any questions about GSAs. Would you need a faculty sponsor? I think it's a great idea that there be a faculty sponsor or two. Someone that can help serve an advising role, help students with following guidelines that the high school or the school has put forth, um, you know, someone who can be a chaperone if they're off campus trips, whatever the case may be, have, make sure everything's on, on the up and up. Um, and, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be someone who's a LGBTQIA either. It could be an ally. Um, chances are that's what's going to need to be. Um, and oftentimes um, campus campus, I'm using campus as a term for the whole school, um, could be uh, any campaigns, day of silences, jeans days, things like that, awareness campaigns tend to be organized through the GSA. So GLSEN is a, is a great organization. They also have a safe school report mm -hmm. that they do. Mm -hmm. Is it yearly? Mm -hmm. I think it's almost yearly. They, and they... Uh, they, res they do a national report on the health and safety of LGBTQ Plus, you so we can get a schools. lot of our information yes. around the effect, what's what what students are saying, how they're feeling, what their climate is like on their their in their school. So we get a lot of the statistics um, around bullying, mm -hmm. um, and the listen's real good too because they they begin expanding it to not just LGBTQ youth, but also they ask these they ask these youths around you know other identities that they have my hope or their religion or their race and whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. and they find they're, they're just if they have a disability and they're fine. Then but bullying can, uh, of course, and, and unfortunately, it's not just around um, queer youth or LGBTQ youth. It could be in other other sort of marginalized youth. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're unfortunately our, our our youth and young adults are, are being taught somewhere. Um, I'd like to point perhaps to the home, but you know they're being taught somewhere that that it's okay to do this. You know it's it's okay to treat people wrongly. Mm -hmm. um, so whose responsibility is it to to stop that? So you know. If it's not happening outside of the classroom or outside the school, it needs to at least be happening in the school. 
Can you provide some other resources for teachers to not only educate themselves, but to recommend for parents and for students about LGBTQ plus issues? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, if they, once again, for a great first start is go to that Glisten website. There's lots of downloadable materials there and places, things you can find. I would, depending on your community and where you are, I would reach out to some local community organizations. There's lots of nonprofits that do this kind of education work as well. So we'll link some of these resources yeah. to our show notes today. Definitely. What should teachers, ally teachers, do about unsupportive colleagues and administrators when it comes to LGBTQ plus student rights? Mm-hmm. What should they do about unsupportive? So let's let's define unsupportive. Maybe it's someone who is not virulently anti-gay or anti-trans or something, but they just don't quite get it. So they're a little off-put, maybe. You're like, why do I have to do this? Why is this my responsibility? But then there's maybe the people who are just really rabidly, just a- absolutely homophobic or transphobic. Um, and, 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 and I use those words to mean, to mean not just fear, but just an irrational, irrational hatred or a, or a assumption that, that, that those identities aren't real. Um, and so... What do you do with those people? Those are two different kinds of sets, I think. Um, so you have to kind of figure out what, who they are, where they're coming from. Um, and I always take the, try to take the tack that is, that is um, if they're in a profession of education, they're there because they want these kids, to, these young adults and these youths to, to get a good education, right? They want them to be good, prosperous members of society, you know, finish, finish school, right? We want them to matriculate. It's in our interest, right? There's that too. So um, to to think, put them, put try to put them in the in the in those that mindset, you know. So we're here to make sure everyone's successful, right? So um, if there's someone who's just kind of not quite getting it, if they're in that mindset, re- reach them at that level. Say, so I'm only help, going to help you bring you up up speed a little bit here, and it's not that difficult. Um, here's some examples of things that I'm doing. Um, and here are some resources to help you out. Um, what role do you think abstinence-only education has played in in where we are today in our schools with the, with our understanding and the ways in which we talk about gender and sexuality? Yeah. Well, and what should we be doing? Right. There's a there's a whole lot to unpack, but I could. But it's a good question related to this topic because. So much of well, first of all, let's look at the landscape of of sex education. When I talk about sex education, I'm not talking about just how people are doing it or how they're being intimate with people. I'm talking about science and biology and science that says that sexual orientation is not just heterosexual or homosexual. So when we talk about sexuality education and sex education, it should be a way where it's okay to affirm, yes, not everyone, though, is going to be engaging in sex between or intimacy between people of opposite sexes or genders, right? And we should be able to talk about that in ways that shares what what ways intimacy happens between people um, and what's risky and what's not risky. Oftentimes, if we're only talking about abstinence, when we do talk about uh, any kind of sexual activity, it's between them, just between a man and a woman, and it's penetration. But to be blunt, 
Um, so when we start talking about intimacy or sexuality or sex be beyond penetration, which if we want to look at science shows us that it's the most common forms of intimacy between people, no matter what their gender is or what the biological sex is, the most common forms are not penetration. <laughs> Or, or allow me to be blunt even more further, but penetration of, of a vagina or even an anus. Um, the most common forms of intimacy or oral sex and um, a, a better term also might be frottage or, you know, sort of rubbing. So, and these aren't awful terms. These aren't bad terms. These aren't sinful terms. These are, these are actually good and healthy terms to be able to be using in fact if we want to talk about how to ha have our use that are gauging in sexual activity like this we want to make sure that they're not getting pregnant or they're not going to get STIs or sexually transmitted infections or some people would say sexually transmitted diseases we want to make sure that doesn't happen we should be teaching ways for them to be intimate when none of that will happen um low-risk activities, like I just mentioned, like oral sex and frottage, which would be called rubbing. Now, for some people, that they don't want to talk about that stuff with their kids. Um, but that's just the reality. That is the reality. What do you make of the intentional dissemination of misinformation mm -hmm. with regard to sex education? Well, there's another thing about sex education in this country. There's no national law that says it has to be scientifically accurate. And in fact, the vast majority of the states, there is it does not have to be scientifically accurate. And another thing related to all this, a number of states have laws that say you can't say anything affirming or positive about same-sex relationships. Arizona just actually rescinded a law that said that you couldn't say anything positive. That just happened a couple weeks ago. Um, so if you would do you be have allowed to say marriage equality passed the Supreme Court? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Probably, but you know you can't say anything positive. You know that's just so crazy, um, and uh, which is why, which would, if you can't do that, then you certainly can't have an anti-bullying campaign that says words like gay or point. lesbian, right? Excellent point. So, you would know, you be able to interrupt somebody who's actually that's a big, homophobic no, bullying? Because that would be positive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's that's the craziness of it all, and, the, and some of you know, there's a number of other states and that do this. And you know, I want to, I want, I, I don't want to target states in the south of the United States because that's where a number of these these laws are. But even in the state of Illinois, there are communities. Even we like to think of state of Illinois as a blue state, or you know, this is affirming place. There, are, there are definitely communities in in this state, despite what laws may say, where saying stuff like this in an affirming way is frowned upon um and it it takes it's going to take a, a school of people to come together to support each other to allow this for it to happen um and vast respect to those youths that are forming their gsas that are allowing this to happen it shouldn't be the responsibility of the gsas the students right. running these groups essentially right to to do this work it should be the educators they should be doing this Speaking of education, can you tell us a little bit about the educative tools, the gender-bred person, and the gender unicorn, and oh, your, okay. your thoughts and feelings yeah, on both definitely. of those sort of teaching tools? Sure. Um, okay, so 
I want to try to unpack this a little bit. First of all, I like the gender red person, so I'm going to say that right now. Um, now, I have been using a form of that or stick figures to help people understand how gender has been operating in our culture and, in, and how it's been operating in, in not good ways. I've been using that as a teaching tool for many, many years. And so have lots of other people. Um, now, who first authored that or who first copyrighted it? It's a big question. Um, the person who who designed the genderbred person graphic, which has become quite use, uh, useful and, and popular, and, I'm a, and I must say, I think it's the best designed one I've seen, um, and I use it all the time. They've received some criticism for it because they didn't cite the original original people in the past that have who've, who've done this before, and because this person is also cisgender, like I am, um, a male actually, like I am, um, they've received criticism from people in the trans community, and I get that criticism. Um, he is now, I understand now, now um, offering this for free and and has. Um, given credit to people in the past that have been doing this educators feminists people that have been doing this work for for years to help people understand the reality of gender as expansive as it is the unicorn is an attempt to offer something different from the gender red person now here's my thoughts on it i think it's a fantasy thing you know a unicorn is like this imaginary thing so i don't i have a problem with using an imaginary thing to have people try to explain gender which is not imaginary does that make sense? So, some I think some. And once again, I'm a cisgender guy. <laughs> I think some of the criticism is a little pedantic. But other than that, you know, I really like the gender red person, and uh, it's I found it as a useful tool to help people that that are trying to grasp that gender is not a binary and that's not connected to biological sex, not always, and that it's not connected to someone's sexual orientation or the romantic attraction, all these categories, or in our expression, all these things are different things. Um, and we unfortunately try to connect them all together. That's the same thing, and they're not. The Trump administration has done much to attempt to dismantle civil rights protections for students in various ways. In 2017, the Trump administration revoked Obama administration guidance detailing school-based obligations to LGBTQ plus students under Title IX. The protections are still there, and students and their families can sue or file a civil rights complaint, but if they do not know their rights, then the situation can become dire. Moreover, removing guidance as to the responsibilities of schools under Title IX to protect LGBTQ plus students serves only to muddy the waters. LGBTQ plus students are still entitled to the legal protections of Title IX. The removal of Title IX guidance language serves only to cloud schools' understanding of their obligation to transgender youth, opening them up to potential legal actions. The Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights has frequently dismissed cases of discrimination filed by LGBTQ plus students and their families since the tenure of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. In September of 2017, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos withdrew Title IX guidance addressing sexual harassment and sexual violence. This action also disproportionately impacts LGBTQ plus students. 
In 2014, the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights issued a joint letter to colleagues reiterating that schools are explicitly prohibited from discriminating against students on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, religion, or disability, and providing data and guidance on exclusionary discipline policies and practices. In late 2018, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos rescinded this guidance, which was aimed at protecting students from discrimination in school discipline. What do you think about these changes, and what can we do to support our K-12 LGBTQ plus students, as well as students in higher ed? I want to go back to some of our previous comments, just to, just to start there. Um, regardless of whether or not the federal government or your state has some kind of law that says you what you need to do, I think there are ethical things that we should be doing and we need to be doing. So let's follow that. But let's look at what's going on, at least with the federal government, right? Um, they're sending the guidance. Um, I find it problematic because we knew they knew that this was going to be a problem. They knew that this would be a problem, particularly for trans students. Now, once again, trans students have always been there. And if we didn't know it, they've always been there. This isn't a new thing. Um, our culture is understanding how to be more affirming and supportive, inclusive now, um, thankfully. Uh, but rescinding the guidance for that w just made it very confusing for people um, because it's in opposition to case law that's out there. Um, and so if I were you and you're working in a public, particularly a public institution or public school, I would pretend the guidance is still there, and that's what you should be doing. Um, because uh, I can guarantee you, it will it will be back again. That's right. And 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 the law is going is clearly moving in that direction. And so, why put your yourself and your school in jeopardy? Right. I wouldn't do that. Um, so, if you're trying to follow some very baseline. Trump administration guidance, whatever that is, that's the least you should be doing. You should be doing more than that because you're going, you, there's no reason to open up yourself to a lawsuit. Um, but don't do it just because of that. Do it because you're trying to make sure that your students get the best education that they can. How and, do I signal to my students that I'm an ally? Mm -hmm. So many, so many little ways you can do that. Um, you, you, one, you don't even have to make a big deal about it. It could be things that you have posted around the room. It could be Give us some examples. A rainbow flag or a pink triangle, which is a symbol that's been taken back from World War II and the Nazis. Uh, they, the, the Nazis required gay and bisexual men to wear a pink triangle in the concentration camps. Um, lesbians a black triangle. You could put these symbols up. You can even teach about their history, and that'd be a really good way to show that uh, you're an ally. Because I, I guarantee you, you do small things like that somewhere in your semester, even if that's the only time you do it, those students are going to see you. Those queer students, those LGBTQ students, those youth, they're going to remember that, and they're going to be glad that you did that. Mm -hmm. They'll immediately see you're an ally. You know, day, share your preferred pronouns or pronouns that you like to use that, that explain who you are. Um, they're going to pick up on that. 
if you're teaching history, find find a way to uh, include people that's probably people that you're already teaching. Make sure you talk about you know, and this person also their their partner, their name, you know, whoever share share their share who who they were, you know, in love with or whatever, you know, and make sure that you know the name is uh, you know a same sex name. You know, they're gonna pick up on this stuff. Lots of little ways like that. You know what? And you don't even have to be. You could be. Maybe you're teaching math or statistics or something, you know, there's still ways to do this in your classroom there. Maybe you've got examples and stories that you use to, you know, to trying to teach something, you know, include a same-sex couple, just like you would an opposite-sex couple, you know. I have two questions for you, Carrie. What is one question that you're asked all the time that you wish you weren't asked? And what is a question that you wish you were asked and are never asked? Questions that just kind of annoy me a little. One question I get a lot. In fact, I already got it today. Not from you. It was from someone else um, who was well-meaning, but they wanted to know how many LGBT students there were. How many? In the world? Uh, they worked, They wanted about my school, but they're basically asking the same question. And, and, and this is what I what I'm hearing when I get that question is, do we really need to care about this? So it's an attempt at minimization. Yes, maybe. absolutely. And so, and it's difficult to pin that down because most schools do not ask students their sexual orientation, you know, when they come to class or when they're admitted in, in higher ed. Now that's changing. Um, and most schools do not ask an inclusive gender identity question that allows for students to identify themselves as trans or transgender. Is there a non-binary question? Or is it just male-female? It's usually just male-female or man-woman, combination of those. Um, now, that's changing, too. Um, so there's no way to... And even if we did require that, it's usually voluntary. So we're not really getting an accurate number. How do we figure out how many students are in the school? Um it's best to look at reputable statistics. Sometimes if you look at a, a survey and evaluation or something, national survey, and, they, and that they do ask sexual orientation, it wasn't, or gender identity with inclusive demographic question, it wasn't intended to survey the number of people in the, in the region or in the country, because you might only get a small number. So it has to be a, an intensive, intensive and intended way to try to figure out the percentages. And the Williams Institute at UCLA does a really good job of this. So they've, they've been tracking this for a few years now. Um, and uh, so the best way to answer this question, if, if we need to answer it, is to look at demographic of age groups. If you ask people that are of an older generation, I'm talking like 50s, 60s, or even older, you get lower numbers, 2 3%. If, and that's just sexual orientation, um, not heterosexual. Um, so homosexual, bisexual, um, pansexual, whatever sexual orientation is not heterosexual. And as you get younger age groups, young adults and youth, the numbers go up dramatically. We're talking over 10%. And de depending on geographical area, like if it's a larger city, the numbers are even higher. Um, so... I would say if you're trying to figure out how many are in your school, look at the age group and then look at maybe a geographical location. A geographical location, if it's a bigger city, perhaps it's a more supportive community. And so people are more out. 
more likely to respond to a, a survey and says, yes, I am not heterosexual, I'm homosexual or bisexual, or whatever term they use. And uh, um, use that to try to figure out your stats. In my institution currently, right now, I've, I've tried to figure this up. And so I, I, I'll say that we have pro approximately about 400 students that are not heterosexual at our, at our current institution, There's, if, if we assume we have over 5,000 students. And what's a question that you are rarely asked that you wish you were asked more? Or what's something that you would like to talk about more that people don't really ask you about? I, I wish that we could talk, we could respond to more questions that weren't, and, and I know that's important that people need to know this. I wish we could be, go move beyond the questions of labels, labels mm. and terms. I know it's really important for people because people are really concerned about using the wrong term. Wow, that's so easy to not do, to not use the wrong term. You just use the term that someone just uses for themselves. They call themselves lesbian, you call them lesbian. They say that they're pansexual, you say that they're pansexual. You know, I, I find that, that pre-service teachers like very clear and explicit yeah. instructions on how to do something often. Yeah. And the world is not always it's clear not and explicit. Always that way. So what's a way in which you can in an affirmative way, ask someone their preferences. Can you give us a couple of sentences that mm -hmm. that maybe the novice listener could could utilize right. in, in a right. new classroom, let's say? Right. Well, normally we're not usually walking around sharing our sexual orientation, right? Um, it comes up in casual conversation, right? Um, so maybe you're you're talking to a, your one of your young young adults or a student in your class, and they they reveal that they're dating someone of the same gender or same sex. So just automatically, if you need to know an easy thing to do, don't assume that they're gay or lesbian because they may not use those terms. Just say, oh, I'm really glad that you're nice to meet your your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, or boo or whoever, the, however they identify them. Um, and try to remember, oh, just because they're dating someone of the same gender as sex does not mean that they're gay or lesbian. They might use that term, but they might not. So uh, my, my suggestion is... Um, uh, to affirm that the the relationship, or to affirm that they're sharing something with you, because sometimes these use, they may not have a term that they're using, um, and and sometimes terms, even the the ones that we're most familiar with, like gay or lesbian, they come with, they come with a, a certain level of baggage, um, or assumptions, and students or youth might not, they might want to stay away from that, and so they may use a different term, or they're trying on different terms at the time. And so you could say to them, um, I'm curious, how, 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 do I, how would I refer to your sexual orientation? Or, or is that something that we can talk about? Um, and they might be able to say to you, well, this is the label that I'm using, or this is the label how I share myself. And I find a lot of students and youth that are not heterosexual, but also not gay or lesbian, are using terms like pansexual, because they also understand that you know they're capably attracted to many different types of genders, and they're kind of they're on that lay that wavelength already, even if we aren't yet. And uh, so that's a that's a typical term instead instead of saying bisexual, which is dependent on a binary of just two, um, or if their gender identity is not man or woman or girl or boy, they're going to use a term perhaps like gender queer. Um, or a gender, or gen they just say that I don't have gender. I'm you know what's funny, Carrie? We talked about 
you not liking to talk about labels and we're talking like, about labels. <laughs> I know, but that's what people really want to know about this. They're like, oh, can we move beyond it? Because, you know, understanding a label is so small. What should we talk about? We should be talking about and understanding and learning to accept that uh, if we're talking about gender, if we're talking about gender or sexuality, that it's beyond a binary. And how do we increase increase empathy and understanding yeah, how for do this? We, People need to just begin to become comfortable with it and and listen to people because just because say for someone's transgender because one person's transgender transgender doesn't mean the other person that's transgender is just like them experiences are dependent on who the person is um and a person's you know story is going to be vastly different than another person's and how and how it works for them um, there's no one way to be transgender for example mm-hmm. just like there's no one way to be not heterosexual you know right Right? and so you know empathy comes from sort of understanding how these people's lives are being willing to just listen sometimes to say hey can you tell me more about this it's also important for teachers to read and research on your own so don't make it your students responsibility to teach you you, right to educate you right and they might not feel safe doing that they might not feel comfortable and it's not their responsibility if they want to share with you that's great but teachers should also be trying to learn outside and do their own independent research and reading and learning Mm -hmm. right and attending seminars and buying carrie's book for example gosh when you go to a conference and I'm hoping you have those that ability to do that kind of stuff, like a professional conference, whether it's regional or national. Seek out, seek out these kind of workshops because I guarantee you they're thought. there. That's a great thought. Absolutely guarantee you they're there. Or if you can't go, say you don't have the funds for that or your school doesn't provide those funds, but you can see the conference schedule, don't be afraid to reach out to those people who are presenting and say, hey, I can't make it. I really would love to come to your presentation, but I can't. Is it possible I could get your materials? That is a fantastic idea. And as a researcher and presenter, we love to get these emails, yeah, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I share anything. If you right. ask me, Same. I will share it. Yep. Except I can't share the book for free. Thank you, Carrie. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for pushing my book. I appreciate it. <laughs> we are Educate. Caring Activist Teachers for Equity. Educate would like to thank the following for their support of this broadcast. The University of Illinois at Springfield, UIS. The College of Education and Human Services at UIS. The Department of Teacher Education at UIS. The Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at UIS. And a very special thanks goes to our sound editor and designer, Emily Bowles, Online Learning and Faculty Development Specialist at Colors, Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at UIS. I'm Jennifer Martin. Remember, always err on the side of awesome.